Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Stratford Sphere, a colossal 90-meter-high LED-clad all wins planning approval. An unbuilt skyscrapers development in London's troubled Vauxhall Nine Elms regeneration zone changes hands at a colossal loss. Waterloo, the UK's busiest station, seeks a master planner for a zero carbon revamp. And Rishi Sunak's spring statement. What does it mean for London's green construction ambitions in the year ahead? My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The London. My guest this week is Joe Giddings. Joe is co-founder of Architects Climate Action Network. That's ACAN. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. A colossal LED-clad sphere-shaped mega-concert venue will soon transform the East London skyline. It's been dubbed the Stratford Sphere and has been covered in the AJ and provoked a flurry of comments on Twitter. Controversial plans for a 90-metre-tall, ball-shaped concert venue designed by Putney-based stadium specialist Populous were granted planning permission this week, despite more than 850 objections. The 21,500 capacity sphere, which one Twitter commentator has named the Bow Bollock, will be built on a three hectare site in Stratford, partially bound by rail lines. It will feature an immersive LED experience on its inside, uh, which could be used for awards ceremonies, e-gaming, ring sports, conferences and cinematic shows. The developer, Madison Square Garden Company, a giant US-based sports and entertainment outfit, has already begun construction on an almost identical yet slightly smaller sphere in Las Vegas, which is due to open next year. The Stratford version was approved after the London Legacy Development Corporation planning officers said the scheme should go ahead, noting that the site, which had been used as a coach park during the 2012 London Olympics, has been allocated for a large town centre use in its local plan. Critics have slammed the project for its vast scale and impact on Stratford Station and on the nearby residents who may be subject to 360 degree advertising from the building's exterior LED screens coming right into their homes. 
However, a planning report claims the sphere would, quote, establish a strong sense of place at a scale that is not considered to be excessive. Uh, it went on to say that the building would, quote, provide an attractive visual backdrop for people living, working and enjoying recreational time, visiting and travelling through the metropolitan centre of Stratford. So, Joe, this week, uh, the planning committee voted in favour uh, of this project. Um, do you agree with claims that it would bring significant public benefits and is well suited to its surroundings? W what do you think of it architecturally? Uh, no, I, I don't agree with, with the decision that was made. I don't believe that this is a proposal that benefits the public in any significant way, really. It seems to be primarily a commercial endeavour. And we're talking about a 21,500 capacity venue here, so a significant new institution. And in the planning committee last night, it was highlighted that, quote, a minimum of 10 days a year will be given to community uses, which is only 2.7% of days in the year. And local groups, councillors and individuals lined up to object to the scheme. And one that struck me was a young woman in her 20s who lives directly opposite the venue. And she was given the opportunity to speak and said, quote, how anyone can think that proposing a flashing billboard over the road from homes is a good idea is beyond me. She then summed up, it's unhealthy and will lead to depression. So rather than remove some of the lights, the developers have offered these residents blackout blinds to, in an attempt to mitigate this impact. And to me, that just doesn't sound like a significant public benefit. Blackout blinds. And that's really interesting because actually if we look at the sphere, I mean, the blinds are pretty low tech, but the sphere is a proposal. It's got some pretty high, uh, high spec, impressive features to it. So yeah, once it's built, it's going to have the world's largest LED screen. Um, it's going to have full surround sound inside and um, what's been described as haptic technology throughout the floors. Um, not only that, but the exterior of the building is going to have 54,000 square meters of screens and lightings. Um, what is the environmental cost of constructing and running such a kind of energy rich building? I mean, all that stuff sounds quite fun, doesn't it? And I don't want to be cast as some kind of environmental naysayer here. But, but the problem is that we don't even know the exact environmental cost. The planning application was submitted such a long time ago that embodied carbon for this building hasn't been reported as far as I can tell. And the new London plan, which now requires developers of schemes like this to report this figure, was only in draft format at that time. So if you look at the sustainability statement in the planning application, there isn't anything meaningful in there. It just says, quote, the design of the development should prioritise materials that have a low embodied energy. That's it. However, as you pointed out already, this is a large orb made out of steel, glass, concrete and whole load of LEDs. And in terms of its wider impact, the venue envisaged only 0.1% of attendees to the venue would travel by bike. So they've separately proposed a large car park to accompany the venue. And this is on a site in London, which is well served by public transport and cycle infrastructure, which just seems a bit unnecessary. But we, we can only imagine the exact impact of these buildings. And hopefully the mayor of London's office, now it's been called in, will ask for those calculations. I do like to think, though, that a world in which we have effectively mitigated climate change is also a world where we can have massive screens and fully immersive entertainment. But if we take this particular proposal at face value and be real and think about where we are at right now, it's 2022, it's a climate emergency. Instead of ploughing on and building this giant light up orb 
of steel, glass and silicon, which doesn't even attempt to measure or mitigate its impact, why don't we collectively figure out how we can exactly can build large venues like this with no impact on the climate? Absolutely. And is there any way we, you could deliver large scale entertainment projects like this without amassing a huge environmental footprint, you know, both in, in body carbon and in um, the running of it? And um, are there any examples through either now or in history where people have done this? Like, I don't know, the Colosseum in Rome, was that a is it net zero carbon or yeah, what, what should we look for? What's the solution? You should read Barnabas Calder's book, uh, who he kind of, I, yeah, he studies the, the impact of buildings like the Colosseum in Rome in great detail. It's a really, really good read. But um, but yes, in answer to your question, I think it is possible to, to build large scale entertainment venues like this in, in a good way. I think the first question should always be, is a new building necessary? And anybody that is familiar with nightlife in London will be aware of venues like print works and drum sheds, which utilise existing large industrial buildings as, as nightclubs. And the same group, Broadwick Live, who opened those two venues, is currently working on a huge new open-air cultural venue called Dockyards, which is just a stone's throw away from, from this site, also in East London just the other side of the Royal Victoria Docks from the XL Centre. And it will work with existing buildings and infrastructure on the site. And I think that reimagining existing structures like this is the way that we need to go. I would also point listeners towards Forest Green Rovers Football Club in West of England, who are building a, an all-timber football stadium in Stroud at the moment, designed by Zaha Hadid. And I imagine this building will store more carbon in its structure than it will emit through its construction. So... Absolutely. Yes, we can. We just need to do it in the right way. Thank you for supporting The Lundown by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. The Lundown is produced by Open City and the London Society. Open City is a charity best known for Open House Festival, um, but it's also very well known for our tours, education programmes and events. Uh, the show, along with the festival and schools programmes, are free uh, because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment. Um, to keep this show free for everyone, uh, of course, we rely on those of you who can afford it um, to donate the equivalent of uh, just one coffee a month uh, it really makes a massive difference um, so if this is you uh, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flat white uh, to donate uh, and help keep these conversations accessible inclusive and honest the Chinese property developer RNF Properties has sold one of its huge Nine Elms development sites uh, called Vauxhall Square for a whopping £62 million loss this week. Uh, it's been reported in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, the debt-laden developer has sold the site, which has planning permission for two large Allies of Morrison-designed office buildings and twin 42- and 58-storey towers, uh, to their Hong Kong-based rival Far East for a nominal sum of just one pound um, along with the site far east has also inherited a 95.7 million pound debt from rnf uh, a value which is approximately 42 percent lower than the market value of the project uh, in the deal rnf retained the right to repurchase the project within six months uh, for 106.6 million pounds uh, from far east um, martin wong from estate agents knight frank said it was quote one of the biggest losses on a sale i've ever 
heard. Um, it was reported in November, uh, again by the Telegraph, that RNF was struggling to sell flats in its various Nine Elms developments, uh, with fewer than 15 homes sold in the first year of marketing. Chinese uh, leader Xi Jinping his three red lines policy introduced back in 2020 has severely hit many of the country's developers, including RNF, um, which together make up a quarter of the country's economic output. The policy aims to curtail China's freewheeling real estate sector uh, by introducing limits for developers seeking to borrow. However, many firms now risk sinking into a worrying liquidity crisis and having no cash to pay their suppliers. Um, early this year, RNF's main contractor multiplex down tools for two weeks at another of their three nine elm sites over a payment dispute um, it also reported the company has struggled to make bond payments over the past few months now stories like this are particularly resonant right now considering the huge amount of attention being given to the chinese developer evergrand um, the world's most indebted development company uh, which has also defaulted on bonds uh, with creditors threatening enforcement action um, it also comes as the global ratings agency standard and Poor warned that the London property market is overvalued by as much as 50%, sparking fears of a market correction with falling house prices and the prospect that overly ambitious development plans such as Vauxhall Nine Elms might need a rethink. So, Joe, what's this all about? Um, is it normal for a developer? You know, typically they're, they're quite sensitive companies that want to make lots of money. Uh, is it normal for a developer like RNF to take such a substantial loss uh, on a development site like this? I think this is a story about capital, really, global capital, in which the dwellings themselves are financial assets built speculatively rather than a response to the needs of, of Londoners. So what I'm seeing here is the result of a policy that believes purely market-based solutions are a good way to renew urban areas and deliver housing. So coming back to your question, is it normal for a developer to take on such a substantial loss? No, it's not. But it I think it's also hardly surprising in this case. What it looks like to me is a couple of towers that contain 578 luxury apartments struggling to sell, sitting amidst a less than attractive new urban area. It looks like something that's completely superfluous to requirements, if I'm honest. I think it's also a story about Boris Johnson and the kind of mess that tends to follow in his wake, as this is a relic of his time as mayor. It kind of goes back to the post-financial crash era when development finance like this was highly sought after and incentivized. Um, we're living in a different moment now, I think. So it's not a surprise to me to see that this development has struggled to make it work. Yes, it's, it's fascinating. It's a good point about the former London mayor. Um, certainly, I remember uh, when Nine Elms was dezoned from industrial protected status uh, for residential. It was always described as a place that would provide the homes for the growing city, uh, which is London. But obviously, it doesn't really appear to have transcribed into that in that um, now it's more famous for highly speculative tower developments. Um, what does this latest story then say about the viability of some of those planned developments in Nine Elms? Because obviously there's a lot of it's built, but an enormous amount of it isn't built. And it was projecting kind of sales prices that may no, no longer be possible. And um, will this have a knock on effect for the wider Nine Elms area and also potentially other Chinese developer backed schemes in London? Yeah, I, I think it probably does have a, a knock on effect. And if you think about the whole area, the Vauxhall Nine Elms development sits in it's really prime riverside location. Property prices have been going up in the borough over the past decade. So they went up 23% between 2014 and 2019. 
but yet we are seeing developers struggle to sell flats in, in this area. So it raises a question, a broader question, I think, about whether these blocks of flats, which are described in the Telegraph as luxury, whether these respond to, to local housing need. There are about 10,000 people on Wandsworth's housing waiting list, and I understand that there are food banks opening nearby. And high-end housing doesn't really cater to that need. Its offer is for for the market. So this demonstrates to me that there isn't as much of a market for this type of flat as was expected by the developer. I think it also says something about how housing needs have changed in the years since this was planned. The people that are buying houses tend to want more space now so they can work at home half the week and they want outdoor space. So I can't really say much about financial viability, I think. I don't really like that term as it's often used to squeeze social housing out of developments. But what I can say is that this appears to be a really bad way to make city. Yes, and certainly on that point about housing need, if you look on the property portals at Nine Elms, you will find entire floors of skyscrapers which are for sale. You'll find 15-bedroom units. Where is the need for that? Like, what... what... Um, I'm just thinking there's there's a lot of chat about skyscrapers uh, as being a kind of um, sustainable uh, approach to development because they allow density. Uh, do you think skyscrapers, and obviously these sort of, in this case they're used for luxury apartments, can be a sustainable model um, for building cities? Um, and if not, are, what are some examples of a more measured approach to city making? Um, you know, how can we go about building tall or building dense in a sustainable way? It's a really good question. I, I think you're right to pick up that density is really important. Um, this type of development, if replicated across London and other cities, would, however, push us way beyond our, our planetary boundaries. And and the reason for that is that once you go above 10 or 12 storeys, you have to make the structure of a building work really hard. And the embodied carbon emissions per square metre of floor space go up. So studies have shown that in a concrete frame building of around 10 storeys, the structural components would account for around 100 kilograms of CO2 per square metre of, of floor. Whereas when you double the height of the building to 20 storeys, that figure jumps up to around 250 to 400 kilos of CO2 per square metre. So as you increase the building height, the carbon cost for every square metre in the whole building increases. And that's simply due to having more sizable structural elements. So, so the sweet spot seems to be around 10 to 12 storeys. And at that height, we have some fantastic examples, I think. So Warthistleton's, Dalston Lane, 10 storey block of flats in, in East London with a cross laminated timber structure, which, of course, uh, stores carbon that's absorbed from the atmosphere as the, as the tree grows. And another project by the same practice, Murray Grove, also in East London, is 10 storeys built using timber. And there are 10-storey mass timber buildings going up in Canada, France, uh, Germany, Norway, and elsewhere. So I think if we're thinking of building new, dense urban quarters like this, we have to be thinking of neighbourhoods of 10 to 12-storey buildings, maybe up to 15, with predominantly timber structures. That's the future that I want to live in. Waterloo Station, the busiest railway station in the UK, with nearly 100 million people passing through its tickets gates annually, is due to be transformed in a historic revamp. Uh, this is a story that was covered by the AJ. Uh, the station, originally built in 1848 and later rebuilt in 1922 in the Imperial Baroque style, will be at the centre of a new master planning commission spearheaded by the local council. 
Lambeth Council is looking for an architecture-led, multidisciplinary team to take on the estimated £400,000 commission to transform the historic station close to the South Bank. Um, the redevelopment aims to boost connections to surrounding public realm and regeneration projects, and enhance and support the wider economy and communities. Um, redevelopment concepts for the station must be zero carbon or carbon positive, and be grounded in a realistically achievable delivery strategy which will also include a significant commercial development element. Uh, the main station buildings were constructed from 1907 to 1922, uh, designed by the chief architects of the London and South Western Railway. Uh, that was J.W. Jackham Hood and A.W. Slumter. Uh, the complex includes an elaborate street and concourse frontage designed by James Rob Scott. Uh, the Grimshaw-designed Waterloo International Terminal also opened in 1993. Uh, it was named the RIBA President building of the year and won the prestigious Mies van der Rohe award for European architecture. Uh, the latest project, supported by Network Rail, the South Bank Employers Group and other local business improvement districts, aims to simplify interchange routes within the hard-to-navigate station, uh, which currently faces capacity limits, while also improving its surrounding environment, which is currently, quote, not attractive and can be confusing to navigate. That is certainly true. Uh, the new study into options for Waterloo and its immediate surroundings comes three years after the local firm Western Williamson and Partners completed an £800 million overhaul of the station, uh, which saw that disused Grimshaw Waterloo International building reopened for domestic services. Um, so, Joe, uh, I've learned you're a South Londoner. Uh, what do you think of Waterloo Station in its current state? Um, and is a significant commercial development potentially involving the replacement of the BFI IMAX nearby necessary to bring this place up to standard? Yes, I am a South Londoner. I actually worked in Waterloo for a couple of years until recently, so I spent quite a lot of time there. And, and there's something about it that I really love. Uh, you mentioned that it's hard to navigate, but it's one of those places that you can easily get lost in. And there are passageways under the station, plastered with murals, alleyways, raised walkways. And um, One of my favourite spaces, actually, is down by the foot of the IMAX itself. And so the IMAX is in the middle of this big roundabout. And the foot of the building is way below ground level. So you can only get to it via the subways under the road. But when you're down there, it's amazing. It's got this subterranean feel and it's incredibly green because they've grown climbing plants along wires that run between the walls of the IMAX and the edge of the road, which is way above head height. So the only light down there is filtering through this, this lush plant life. I love it. It's great. So I hope they retain that. Um, so obviously I'd written the article about this that went in the AJ this week and I had the great joy of reading the specification document, which has so much cool detail about the history and the ambitions for this. And one of the things it says is... Um, yeah, the big the plan for this master planning commission is to create a world class terminal and interchange fit for the twenty first century, which is net zero or carbon positive, encourages active travel and improves air quality. Um, that's quite that's quite ambitious. Okay, um, so yeah, what what does that actually look like? What does a mega train station look like? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Yeah, train stations are are the airports of the future, and so I think it's incredibly important that we get them right. And when we're thinking of really big pieces of infrastructure like this, we're, we're invariably talking about a huge amount of concrete. So that makes it all the more important, I think, that we reduce concrete use elsewhere. So we stop using it for the structure of buildings so that we can use it for big pieces of civic infrastructure like this. 
And I hope in this case there'll be strict limits on the carbon intensity of the concrete used, as was seen on HS2 stations. And this is achieved by replacing the cement with with alternatives. But I think before that, the, the principle should be resource efficiency. So to try and work with the existing fabric as much as possible, and then to try and use timber and other natural materials above ground wherever possible. This week, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, delivered the government's spring statement amidst an ever-worsening cost-of-living crisis. Um, This event covered across the national media, including in the AJ, and one that we are discussing slightly in advance of uh, the actual event because we record on a Wednesday morning. Um, This year's mini-budget has felt particularly pressing as people across the country suffer from the combined cost-of-living and energy crises, uh, which have been exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, A letter to the government from 33 civil society groups, including ACAN and the New Economics Foundation, called for billions of pounds to be spent on insulation and heat pumps, and for the reinstatement of the universal credit uplift to help people cope with soaring energy and food costs. Um, the letter to Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak and the business secretary Kwasi Kwarteng urged the government to pledge £3.6 billion for insulation grants to all households and an extra £4 billion by 2025 for the heat pump installations. And it's not just campaign groups that were weighing in ahead of Wednesday's big announcement. Uh, Former Community Secretary Robert Jenrick and former Work and Pension Secretary Stephen Crabb joined 10 other Conservative MPs in writing to the Chancellor, urging him to focus on the retrofit of UK homes. Uh, This was reported by Will Hurst, who's been leading the AJ's Retro First campaign. Uh, In the letter, the MPs said the move would benefit home insulation and energy efficiency and could reduce the UK's gas imports by 15% uh, which would end the current reliance on Russian supplies uh, as well as obviously cutting energy bills and combating fuel poverty. Um, The MPs who are part of the Conservative Environment Network also called on Sunak to launch a national energy saving campaign and to expand existing energy efficiency schemes. Um, So Joe, uh, regular listeners to the show will know retrofit is something we discuss a lot. Perhaps you could talk our listeners through the significance of embodied carbon um, and what kind of contribution adoption of, say, the AJ's Retro First demands would have to the UK's carbon footprint. Yeah, absolutely. So so there's a twin benefit to retrofit, which you've already identified. On the one hand, if we reuse existing buildings and upgrade them rather than demolishing and building new, then we can significantly reduce embodied carbon emissions from construction. And these account for around 20% of the UK's carbon footprint in 2020. So if we stop demolishing and focus on upgrading instead, then we can reduce that slice of the pie significantly. But the other benefit, of course, is tackling energy use from existing homes and buildings. And that accounts for roughly another 20% of our national carbon footprint. And, And that slice of the pie is being brought into sharp focus this year as it intersects directly with the cost of living crisis and energy crisis that we're, we're experiencing at the moment. And most of our homes use gas for heating, which is a fossil fuel, of course, and prices for gas have been going through the roof. And this will continue as we try to wean ourselves off, off Russian gas. So, so yeah, retrofit tackles both of these elements head on. It's all about demand reduction and energy efficiency. And we just have to make our homes more energy efficient. This will reduce energy bills make our homes warmer and more comfortable with all the health benefits that come with that. And of course, we'll reduce the carbon emissions associated with heating our homes. 
Fantastic. And I mean, just on, on sort of terminology, so I'm sure listeners will be familiar that there's there's a lot of talk about heat pumps at the moment, you know, both ground source and air source heat pumps. Um, perhaps you could just talk us through uh, what exactly are they um, and why are people stressing the importance of, of them so much uh, in reducing household emissions? Because there are some people also saying they won't work. So, you know, what What's your verdict? Yeah, there's, it's quite nuanced. I mean, the, the government appears to be moving towards a boiler replacement strategy, which would see gas boilers switched out directly for heat pumps, which run on electricity. So a heat pump is basically like a fridge in reverse. It's basically a box that sits outside your house, either on the roof or in the front or back garden. It's got a big fan on it, and it takes air into the unit and transfers heat energy from that air, even if it's cold, into a refrigerant liquid, which in turn transfers the heat usually into a water tank inside your house. So these are good because they run on electricity, not on gas. And on the surface, this seems like a good thing, right? If the government's moving towards a strategy to replace our boilers with heat pumps. But there are risks associated with such a narrow approach, which I think is what you were alluding to before. So in most cases, we can't just swap out a gas boiler directly for a heat pump. The house needs to be made more energy efficient first. Otherwise, the heat pump will be working very, very hard. And it's a bit like if you imagine leaving your fridge door open and leaving the fridge on, it would cost a lot to run and energy would be just energy use would be going through the roof. So if no home improvements are made and many homes aren't ready yet and not enough people are trying to do the work yet, then a boiler replacement strategy on its own wouldn't work so it needs to form part of a much wider national retrofit strategy which is what ACAN are calling for as part of our households declare campaign and what the new economics foundation are calling for in their great homes upgrade campaign so we've kind of teamed together and this just calls on the government to significantly scale up support for households and introduce measures to reduce this reliance on gas so as well as a boiler replacement scheme, it would be coupled with a massive home improvement program, which would see grants for insulation and the like. Fantastic. Um, and obviously, um, the spring statement this week, um, you know, what if we think about it, what if any uh, kind of progress could the Chancellor make towards this kind of radical decarbonising of the construction industry in something like um, the spring statement? I mean, are mini budgets like this even the right tool to bring about the kind of um, significant change that's needed? Yeah, it's worth noting that production of construction materials like cement, glass, steel and bricks all use quite a lot of gas. And I think the most effective way to reduce those is probably not through any measures that the the Chancellor could introduce in this statement, but would be to introduce building regulations that force developers to measure those emissions every time you, you build a building. So for new buildings, I think we should be talking about new building regulations that that cover embodied carbon. But the Chancellor does have a lot of tools at his disposal that he can use today. And statements like this are an opportunity to to use those tools. So as an example, it's looking like today he'll cut fuel duty by 5p, which will, of course, have negative environmental consequences. But it's also a very inefficient way to support those on lower incomes and it will cost the government quite a lot. So studies by the New Economics Foundation have shown that 5p cut in fuel duty will amount to about one pound eighty a month for households in the lower 20% of earnings. 
and about £8.20 a month for, for the top earners. So nobody saves a great deal, but it's popular and it looks good in the right-leaning press. And it will also cost the government quite a lot. Instead, they could be spending that money and putting it towards a new version of the Green Homes Grant and announcing a strategy for retrofitting our homes, lowering our energy bills and making our homes warmer. So, so I think there are things that the Chancellor can do today. And we have to always remember that what he does and decides to do is ultimately a political choice. Fantastic. Well, it's been a great pleasure discussing the big architecture built environment news in London with you uh, this week, Joe. Like, absolutely fantastic insights. And um, we're going to do something new on London. Uh, We're going to have a quick look at what's going on in uh, London's cultural scene, uh, things that are coming up in, in this week. So uh, there's some pretty cool stuff out there. Uh, the V&A has just opened a new exhibition called Fashioning Masculinities. It's like a big uh, collection of, of clothing. I've only seen the press pictures. Uh, I'm tr- struggling to find some space in my diary on a weekend and go and have a look. Um, but what I what's quite cool is that this, the actual exhibition is designed by uh, JA Projects. Um, they're sort of AJ40 under 40 firm. So it's kind of cool um, to see that the V&A is... Uh, continuing its long-running tradition of, of commissioning emerging architectural talents have you have you been to any shows at vna lately no i haven't i i did go to the royal academy's francis bacon exhibition the other day which was excellent and it's all about uh well, francis bacon's relationship with animals and beasts and so it looks at a lot of his paintings through that lens um so i could definitely recommend that yeah that sounds ace yeah definitely need an excuse to go over there and check that out um i actually went uh last night i went to see a, a new production by punch drunk they're a kind of immersive theater company um they've been around in london for like probably two decades uh doing all kinds of weird and amazing things in abandoned buildings and warehouses uh, in this instance they're at uh, one cartridge place uh, in the Woolwich Arsenal uh, redevelopment zone um, and they've done a show called Burnt City which is um, about these uh, Greek mythology and the story of Ro- uh, Troy um, it was absolutely amazing like I had such a great time it was um, uh, like every punch drunk show I've been to I got completely lost and just ended up looking at weird ornaments in a corner uh, while other people were <laughs> witnessing my, my friend who I went with was in a different group and he saw like three executions or something gruesome like that and like real greek mythology uh um, up close um but yeah that was a good there's a good show and quite architectural i thought because um you basically experience it by wandering around these environments now um some other stuff there's some open city major open city culture event this weekend on saturday at 1 p.m uh we have the architecture on thames boat tour the legendary boat tour amazing uh lyrical experience with our tour guide benedicto looney peckham based architect and what i think is really cool about the architecture on thames boat tour is um it starts and finishes in blackfriars um so when you get back at the end of the tour you can nip over to trafalgar square uh where there's the london stands with ukraine march and vigil organized by the mayor of london's office um i think that's it unless there's anything joe anything else on your radar no 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 not at all just um yeah thank you very much for having me on well uh it's it's been a great pleasure um and i hope you can join us again on the show and then also uh where shall our listeners go to keep up to speed on things that you're you're working on or where you're writing and other places or acan activities yeah so you can check out the acan website which is architectscan.org and follow us on instagram and twitter and linkedin as well 
Uh, we usually post on all three platforms when we have upcoming events or campaigns for you to get involved in and encourage you to sign up to our mailing list through our website as well as that work, that's where you'll find most information fantastic and thanks again for coming on the show uh, it's been an immense pleasure and hopefully you can join us again soon thank you very much you've been listening to the London show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to the Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag London, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.